This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. There's no ROI on TMI. That's why TD Ameritrade created a learning experience that will actually learn with you. Curated from their vast library of exclusive content, it customizes to fit your investing goals, interests, and needs, so you get exactly the information you need and none of the information you don't. Get started at tdameritrade.com education. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com education. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people want to make friends just trying to make some money. It's my job, it's not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. What's a surefire way to send your stock soaring higher? Even on an unremarkable day where the Dow dipped 39 points, S&P inched up 0.08%, NASDAQ advanced 0.19%. But you tell the world that you're investing in technology to make your business more efficient. That's how. Just look at the stock of Home Depot, which announced this morning that it's hiring 1,000 technical professionals as part of its $11 billion strategic investment plan and was rewarded with a nearly 3% rally or $4.97. Cynics might argue that this is just a press release by a publicity-hungry hardware chain. And its near five-point run is ridiculous. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Home Depot's been pulling away from its competition, staying ahead of even Amazon, thanks to its homegrown technology effort run by its chief investment officer. You've never heard of, but you should have named Matt Carey. That marries engineers with product managers and salespeople who understand the customer experience. As Mark Benioff, CEO of Salesforce.com and a Home Depot supplier, told me, and I quote, Matt Carey is a legend in information technology. He has personally transformed Home Depot in many of the most significant digital transformation and customer innovations in the retail industry, end quote. So why does Home Depot spend so much on tech? Why does Carey have battles of the brains? To recruit the best coders around? Why do they hire hundreds of tech professionals right out of school or train their technologically inclined employees in a 12-week boot camp? Go listen to the company's latest Give Me an H podcast, and you'll know why. Because these days, if you think running a retail operation is all about having a brick-and-mortar presence, a cashier, and some salespeople, you'll be annihilated by the Death Star otherwise known as Amazon. That's why Home Depot built a mobile app that allows contractors just to speak into their phone and ask for a fastener or a drill bit or a can of enamel paint, and it tells them exactly where to go down to the aisle. How can you compete with that? I think it's impossible, frankly, which is why so many mom-and-pop hardware stores have gone under, despite their often superior personal touch. It's why even arch-rival Lowe's is losing in the two-way national race, because the contractors of the world don't have time to go to Lowe's anymore. Home Depot's too efficient, too quick. Plus, the big data mining that they do is brilliant. Home Depot knows when you want something and where you want it. I suspect this is one of the reasons why the CEO of Lowe's recently decided to retire after a prolonged spat with an activist investor who wanted him gone. Home Depot just never stopped investing in tech. Lowe's 
seems kind of like a tech wasteland. Or as former Home Depot CEO Frank Blake told me this afternoon about CIO Carry, and I quote, Matt's joining Home Depot as one of the biggest turning points for the company. He saw that information technology could be more than a point-of-sale system. He understood that it could be integrated across all parts of the business and leverage a better customer experience, a better associate experience, and a better return for the shareholders. And look, it's not just about retail. Last night, CSX. All aboard. The gigantic railroad reported earnings. Do you know that almost every single cargo they carry, chemicals, autos, agriculture products, was down? <laughs> Yet the company still crushed the profit numbers, and its stock soared up 7.8%. House of pleasure. The second biggest gainer in the S&P 500 today. How did CSX do it? They had a remarkable increase in efficiency, making a much bigger profit from those declining cargo lines with far fewer people. Yep, it was all tech, and yes, the organizational skills put into place by the company's late lamented CEO, Hunter Harrison. Now, there's tremendous pin action in the rails. They're an important group. There are a ton of gray beards out there who don't want to buy stocks unless the transports are running, because the transports... Well, the transports are they're the lifeblood of commerce. So this strength in the rails was instrumental in helping the averages hang in there for most of the day, despite some very high-profile disappointments. <laughs> More on that in a moment. First, though, did you see the other leaders today besides the transports? The oils. In the old days, just so you know, oil at $68 and change, as where it went out today, would have caused our producers to aggressively sell oil futures against the production in order to bring in a little extra income so they wouldn't lose a buck or two or even five bucks per barrel. The option selling, too, would send prices plummeting and the stocks would, uh, the stocks would all get slammed. Uh, back then, $68 was the break-even price for many oil companies, so it didn't make sense for them to do much new drilling. These days, though, you have outfits like Schlumberger, Ports Friday, Core Labs, technology experts. They can find oil in out-of-the-way places and allow you to drill for it much more cheaply. Suddenly, these properties are a lot more valuable. You combine the oil in the Permian Basin with the software of Halliburton, and we have producers making fortunes equivalent to what they used to make when crude was above $100 a few years ago. Or how about steel? Tomorrow we hear from Nucor, arguably the best steel maker on earth. Now we know that President Trump has decided to protect the American steel industry from Chinese dumping. Nucor has spent fortunes harnessing the best engineering and technology to become the world's lowest cost producer of the best quality steel. But you know, it hasn't mattered one whit because the Chinese government heavily subsidizes their own domestic steel production as a jobs program. Needless to say, that's been bad news for the US steel industry. Now, with Trump's new steel tariffs, we'll see how much money Nucor can make with a more level playing field. Well, I don't know. Could it be like Alcoa, which reported an amazing number tonight? Remember, there's tariffs on aluminum, too. But you might ask, if tech is so important, then how the heck is IBM one of the biggest losers in today's market? Isn't that Mr. Tech was off more than 7%? Simple, because it's all about the right tech, and only half of IBM is right. Of course, it didn't help that the new CFO said he was disappointed in the company's storage business on the conference call. I, I, I'm calling that an excess of candor. Forget storage, though. Forget that IBM actually guided up for the next quarter. Now it gets 47% of its sales from what they call strategic imperatives, meaning things like the cloud, blockchain, security, artificial intelligence, everything a modern-day CEO needs to stay competitive. But the other 53%, the older incumbent businesses, they don't have much growth. 
So a huge percentage of IBM just doesn't count in the eyes of this market. When we think of tech, we want unadulterated growth. Nobody wants to invest in a tech stock that's one half fast growth and one half anchor to leeward. Sometimes I wish IBM could just break itself up because the strategic imperative side would be very attractive on its own. But the old and new are too intertwined for that to be a realistic possibility. If we want a fast-growing cloud operation, well, well, then why the heck do we need IBM when we've got Amazon, which despite its 24-point leap today, is still not back to its all-time highs where I think it's headed. Portfolio managers don't asterisk their picks. They don't say, hey, look, I own IBM for the fast-growing stuff, not the slow-motion business, but given how low the price earnings multiple is and how much capital returns and how it has such a good dividend, well, you know what? I'm satisfied. These money managers are all about identifying companies with the best growth prospects. As far as they're concerned, IBM's big dividend is a big red flag. It's a sign that the company doesn't have the opportunities or the DNA, perhaps, to invest in the future. Even as IBM spends a fortune on R&D, it's a patent machine. It's unfair. And IBM deserves better. But as Clint tells us in that seminal stock treaty known as Unforgiven, deserves has nothing to do with it. So here's the bottom line. Tech isn't just fang for heaven's sakes. My acronym for Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google now. It's about the companies that employ tech to trounce the competition in the information technology field. It's about the railroads, or it's about a big orange chain store called Home Depot. With tech, if you live without it, you wither on the vine. Bob in New Jersey. Bob. Oh, thank you for taking my call, Jim. A big booyah from the beautiful Jersey Shore. Well, man, good to have you, Homestater. What's up? Uh, well, thank you again um, for your sage advice on everything involving the stocks. Uh, the Supreme Court's threatening tax on e-commerce sale. Is this a worry for stockholders who are owning Etsy? No. Etsy is a proprietary uh, shopping center online that has the best proprietary uh, uh, crafts, and I think people pay up no matter what. By the way, Amazon pays taxes in states it doesn't need to pay taxes in, uh, not for third parties, for for itself. It doesn't have a presence in some of these states, but it pays taxes anyway. But I know the president hasn't tweeted it lately, which is why it's up about, well, let's say, 100 points. James in California. James! Booyah, Professor Kramer. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Love watching your show. Thank you. Uh, Streaming industry is booming, and I would like to know your opinion about newly IPO'd, just joined top international uh, organization, AO Media, the Netflix of China, top ticker IQ. Thank you. Um, I'm not recommending any stocks from China other than uh, Baidu, uh, Baozun, and Alibaba. I'm not going to differ, not going to change my view. That's the limitation that I have. All right, let's go to Mike in Massachusetts. Mike, Mike, Mike. President Kramer, Mike from Boston. Thanks for having me on. Well, what's happening? No, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, thank you so much, first of all, for everything that you've done for us. Uh, I'm a young investor, and you've taught me so much. Uh, my father thank and I you. talk daily about your show. Thank you. That's what I want. Fathers, sons, mothers, daughters, daughters, father, whatever. Uh, don't be like my family that don't. I know they don't know I have a six o'clock show, but that's okay. That's okay. Don't bother. It doesn't bother me. It's my anniversary, so anything goes. I don't even mind. Oh, I love it. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm calling today uh, because I recently took a position in Lamb Research, symbol LRBF. As you recommend, I started with only a 25% position of the company. 
Um, since then, on my initial purchase, the stock has fallen in the last month, and I've continued to buy the dip. Yesterday, they reported, and they got slammed again, down another 5%. Do you think the pullback is due to unrealistic expectations on the street, or is there an underlying concern in the semiconductor industry? No, Martin Ansis in the call last night said that the strength will be first-half biased, and uh, that was a great concern to me and to others, and I am not going to get aggressive on the stock here because that was not what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear that the second half would be better than the first, and I didn't get that. John in California. John. Hello. My call is about intuitive surgical, symbol ISRG. Uh, I have read that there's some formidable competition coming in that market. The the one that I'm specifically concerned about is a partnership between Google and J&J. Recently, uh, the shares dropped about below four hundred dollars mm-hmm. a share. However, yesterday it surged to about four hundred and seventy shares. Right. And uh, my, I would appreciate your guidance on this. Well, stock. I'll tell you I the hope- truth. I'm not that concerned. I think that Intuitive Surgical. There've been many a challenger. But they've all been defeated by the superior company that is a company that I have liked literally since it came public. Intuitive Surgical, ISRG, own it. Technology was the key to today's rally. With it, companies thrive. Without it, well, good luck. On Mad Money tonight, cloud, big data, machine learning. They're all huge trends, but could worries over REITs have a lasting impact on one of the best ones that happens to be involved with data centers? I'm talking to the CEO of Cyrus One. Then, someone has a case of the Mondays, specifically Acacia Company, Acacia Communications. Now, this company lost 35% of its value on Monday, thanks to an unfavorable Commerce Department ruling. I'll tell you what to make of the stock going forward. And... The bank stocks are stolen here. I'm going to help you understand why. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. All right, at what point do you give up on a story that you've believed in? And that's what I'm wondering about the Data Center Real Estate Investment Trust. As regular viewers know, the Data Center is one of my favorite long-term growth themes. Now that everyone's embracing the cloud, there's a ton of demand for these vast warehouses full of service. And that's been very good for the Data Center REITs that own this real estate. But, and this is a big but, lately the positive fundamentals haven't seemed to matter. The whole REIT cohort is out of favor with the Wall Street fashion show. The data center REITs have been put into a box with every other real estate investment trust, and that box has been thrown in the garbage. Take Cyrus One, an extremely well-run data center REIT, with a stock that's gained 33% last year, yet it's down 14% year-to-date, even though business is pretty darn good. Some of this is because it's got a substantial 3.75% yield, and high yielders, well, they become less attractive when investors worry about higher rates. But I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that people have turned on the REITs in general, even when the fundamentals are so strong. So can Cyrus One make a comeback? 
Let's take a closer look with Gary Wotazic. He's the president and CEO of Cyrus One. Get a better sense of how his company's doing where it's headed. Mr. Wotazic, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, Gary. Have a seat. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me back. Uh, Gary, I found myself thinking, I know that we like REITs, we like the tax advantage, we like everything. But if you were a common stock that were a data center play, and that's all you were, not bricks and mortar, but data center, your stock, I think, would be up more. What do you do to get out of this box? Oh, well, the only thing we can control is our execution. And as you saw in the fourth quarter, we continue to put up really big numbers. So putting aside how REITs trade, I mean, our revenue was up 31 percent, EBITDA up 43 percent, one of the strongest quarters ever. And over time, people are going to recognize you know, that that will eventually pay off. All right, now, how do we sure exactly that things are as good? Because I'm mm-hmm. looking at this key bank guy, yeah. and he's saying uh, rounded out a lackluster fourth quarter earnings season. The data center rate, so-so report, softest quarterly leasing volume in more than two years. Well, you know, actually, in aggregate, the the data center REITs in aggregate actually put up the strongest quarter, well, 15 percent up versus last year. So even even if you put us to the side, I mean, in general, the industry is performing at a really strong rate. And uh, and we expect that we're going to continue to put up really big numbers this year. I mean, our guidance, we're showing 25 percent up in EBITDA performance in 18. So a continuation of the growth. We saw in 17. All right. So talk about the acquisitions, uh, particularly uh, Zenium and how that worked. I mean, because you're partnered there with Quantum Fund. Yeah. um, So we've been talking for many years. We believe this industry is global in nature. If you really want to be helpful to customers, you have to have a global footprint because all the cloud companies that we sell to are, you know, are locating around the world and they have big ambitions and not just in the U.S., but in China. Uh, so our first foray was going to be in Europe. We've mm-hmm. seen you know, increased growth there over the last six quarters now, 50% up versus where it was. We expect it's going to accelerate further. And we bought Zenium, which is the largest data center company, you know, on a private basis that had operations in London and Frankfurt, which right. is the two largest uh, Internet markets in Europe. And China, you're there worried at all? I mean, you see um, these tensions. Yeah, yeah there's tensions. Um, but I think longer term, I think, you know, I think all those things are going to work its way out. I think uh, the president has has his objectives in mind. But fundamentally, a lot of the stuff that they're talking about are not really that data uh, focused. Okay. And so I don't really think it's going to hit us. I mean, GDS is a company we bought. They're up you know, dramatically. We've more mm-hmm. than doubled our, uh, our return on that investment uh, in a couple months. You recently acquired 44 acres of land in Atlanta. I'm trying to understand how Cyrus One picks its spots. Is it, right. is it energy? Is it, do you want to be next, maybe where the Amazon 2 is going to be? I mean, you thought about all these things, right? The, the number one reason or the why we go anywhere is we follow the customer. Right? Okay. You, know, you, you, you sit down with enough customers and you understand where they want to go, where their needs are driving them, and we're basically a derivative of what we're hearing from the customer. So just like in every other location that we've gone into over the last decade, you know, we just follow their voice and, uh, right. you know, we'll put up uh, capacity. And I want people to know when you're talking about customers, you're talking, you're talking about Amazon, Microsoft, Azure, Oracle, Cloud, IBM. I mean, these are the big guys. We have the largest number of, uh, well, it was, a, it was a business that was new. We were, we were traditional right. Fortune 1000 enterprise up until about three and a half years ago. We started focusing on the cloud. And now every single one of the largest cloud companies in the world are customers of ours. And with our Chinese partnership, we expect that uh, some of the, the large Internet companies in China will also be customers. Well, I know that it would be a different conversation if you weren't a REIT, but there's yeah. another time when it was a mm-hmm. blessed conversation. Yeah. As far as so it could just, you know, things come back into fashion oh, on Wall Street. Yeah. We know that. That's right. Okay, that's Gary Wotazic. He's president and CEO of Cyrus One. Cone, long been our favorite, but, ooh, it's a REIT. There was another time when it's, ah, it's a REIT. Stick with me.
While the averages have been behaving nicely this week, we've had some major implosions that also need to be addressed, because this is a teaching show. Consider the collapse of Acacia Communications, ACIA, which lost 35% of its value on Monday. The House of Pain. Thanks to an unfavorable Commerce Department ruling that banned American companies from selling technology to a specific Chinese client. But here's what drives me nuts about this story. We've known this was a risk all along, people. Acacia is a maker of optical networking equipment that came public in 2016. From the moment it came public, I warn you that this company was getting 80% of its sales from just five competitors. Although the number has drifted down to 70% last year. Still, that kind of customer concentration, it can really hurt you, especially when nearly a third of the company's sales came from a single Chinese firm with a somewhat shady reputation. We also knew that the Trump administration wants to tamp down on technology sales to China. In short, this Commerce Department ruling should not have come to a surprise to anybody, certainly not enough to send the stock down 35% in a single day. What were these people thinking who owned it when the writing was on the wall? Do not get me wrong. It is fine to speculate in high-risk stocks. You know I think that way, although I haven't liked the case for quite some time. But if you're going to take that kind of chance, At the very least, you need to be aware of the risks you're facing. Let me take you through the specifics of what happened here, because I think the story is very educational. So on Monday, the Commerce Department imposed a seven-year ban on American companies selling parts or software to a company called ZTE Corp. It's a Chinese maker of smartphones and telco equipment that sells its products all over the world. It's real big. Technically, the purpose of this was to punish ZTE for legally shipping U.S. goods to Iran, something we knew was an issue when Acacia came public two years ago. However, in reality, I th- you have to look at this ruling as still one more front in Trump's administration's slowly escalating trade war with China. Still, the guys at ZTE gave our government more than enough rope to hang them with. They lied They lied about punishing senior employees responsible for shipping American technology to Iran, despite international sanctions. This stuff goes on. But here's why this matters to Acacia. ZTE is a huge consumer of optical networking equipment. China and the United States are racing to build the world's first fifth generation, or we call it 5G, wireless network, with private companies like ZTE spending fortunes to build out this infrastructure. Because most of the component makers are American. This denial order from the Commerce Department is a way for our government to kneecap China's 5G project. That's right. It's going to hurt them. It doesn't help that ZTE's phones are all based on Google's Android. It's possible the ruling will prevent them from using Android going forward, too. Ouch. Just as important, this also hurts the American companies that sell to ZTE, though. The optical equipment makers got slammed on Monday in response. Claro down 15%. Fabernet down nearly 10%. Lumentum down 9%. Finisar, Neophotonics off 4%. That is ugly. But none of those losses comes close to the 35% decline at Acacia. And for good reason. Unlike its peers, Acacia does a huge amount of its business with ZTE. Last year, the Chinese firm accounted for 30% of the sales that this company has. The, De- the Commerce Department ruling, it wiped out all of that business with the stroke of a pen. Again, this wasn't exactly hard to see coming. People on Acacia really should have known about this risk because the company, it it told you. I'm always telling you to do the homework. 
to read the annual report. And this is why, because when you don't read the 10K, you get blindsided. For example, you really need to read the risk section where the company tells you all about all the foreseeable problems that they might run into. These are not black swans, little hedge fund speak, that no one could see coming. They're entirely predictable. And lo and behold, guess what Acacia's list it lists as its very first risk factor in that annual report? I'm just going to read it to you. Quote, we depend on a limited number of customers for a significant percentage of our revenue and the loss or temporary loss of a major customer for any reason could harm our financial condition, end quote. You can't make it clearer than that, can you? They specifically highlight ZTE as their largest customer. Then in the very next paragraph, they explain how ZTE was already on thin ice with the Commerce Department. Now, if you read the report, you would have known that ZTE had gotten in trouble for taking actions contrary to the national security or foreign policy interests of the United States. Ever since 2016, Acacia has only been able to sell things to ZTE thanks to a temporary license from the Commerce Department. The key word there being temporary. The end report continues, and again, I quote, there can be no guarantee that the U.S. Department of Commerce will not take further regulatory action that may materially interfere with our ability to make sales to ZTE, end quote. And that's exactly what happened Monday, people. Look, Acacia told you to worry about this. They did everything short of sending you an engraved invitation warning you to save the date because the Commerce Department's coming to ruin their business. People act surprised, but if investors in Acacia had done any homework, this news would not have come as a shock to them. Again, I warned you about this risk myself way back in July of 2016. At the time, I thought the story had been very attractive, and it's attractive enough that I recommended Acacia and, uh, initially anyway, and that was a good call. So the stock surged from $60 to $130 less than two months later. But then I told you to ring the register after Acacia broke its IPO lockup early and conducted a disastrous secondary offering that crushed the share price. But the point is the primary risk is something we've known about from the jump. So how do you deal with a company that has a ridiculous amount of customer concentration? When looking at a a, a company like Acacia, you need to ask yourself three questions. One, how much revenue comes from a single customer? Acacia got 30% from CTE, which is really, really big. Normally, when you do that much business with one client, you're hostage to that client's fortunes. That said, you don't typically get banned from doing business with them. Second question, where is the customer base and what's the relationship like? Getting 30% of your sales from one Chinese company is very different from getting 30% from one American company, although that's still suboptimal. You also need to consider the power dynamic. Think about, about all of the little component makers that do a ton of business with Apple. Apple might as well have the power of, the, have the power of life and death over these companies. Acacia never really had that problem with ZTE. No, their problem relates to the third question. Are there any specific risks that might threaten the customer relationship? The ZTE relationship was always problematic, but it became dangerous the moment President Trump started trying to, to crack down on China. So what should you do if you own Acacia here? I think it's too late to sell. We don't know that the ZTE ban will be permanent, and the stock's already come down the last few days. I wouldn't be a buyer here, but if you want to exit the position, I bet you'll get a better chance to sell. Let people calm down, let the shorts cover their positions, then head for the exits on a bounce. The bottom line, look, the blow-up of Acacia Communications is unfortunate, but this Commerce Department ruling was something you could have seen coming if you read the annual report or even listened to me when I talked about this company in the past. This is why you always, always, always need to know the risks when you own a stock. Otherwise, you'll get pulverized, as shareholders in Acacia have learned the hard way. Let's go to Sri in North Carolina. Sri! Booyah, Jim. How are you doing today? I am doing real well. How about you? I'm doing great. Thanks for taking my call. 
Uh, Jim, my question is about uh, the stock MongoDB. Uh, I have been in the stock and been out of the stock. I love the stock. I love the company. I love the product. Uh, but the only reason I sold this particular stock is because the lockup period was about to come soon. And it, it just ended yesterday. I want to know, I have a two-part question. I want to know about your thoughts about the stock itself. And wanted to know how to deal with an IPO, which just ended its lockup period. What, what parameters to look out for before I get in again? Well, you want to know how much competition there is. You want to know what its price to, to uh, sales are, because typically these don't have any earnings. And in MongoDB's case, this is an open source database platform. There have only been two real successful open source database platforms. There's Red Hat and there's VMware. Those are two of our cloud kings. And it's been a really, really difficult business to scale. I don't like MongoDB because I think it is. Uh, happy to have them on. They're right from here. But I don't like the cohort because it's just too easy for the big guys to hurt the little guys and for really hard for the little guys to scale. Alexis in Massachusetts. Alexis. Booyah, Jimmy. Century Link, this stock is probably the most unappreciated, misunderstood, and under-owned S&P 500 member. As a result, I believe that it's crazy undervalued and does not even take into account the 13% dividend yield. The balance sheet has about $1 billion per year of free cash flow after all company expenditures, including the dividend, which is more than enough to sustain debt levels. I also believe about three-thirds of their business has substantial growth, especially because of 5G and fiber optics. Okay, okay. They even have a cyber division that no one even seems to know about, and there's the potential for additional synergies with the Level 3 merger. The Singapore <laughs> fund just raised their stake to 11%. Why isn't this stock rated in the 20s? Okay, I think a lot of people who have bought these kind of non-ATT, non-Verizon telco companies have just been crushed. I think that people regard that yield as a red flag. I agree with you that the balance sheet's not as bad as it used to be. But I never reach for yield. When I see that, I say, whoa, boy, I am going to stand aside. And by the way, had you stood aside, you would have missed one of the absolute worst declines that I've seen in ages. So I'm not there for that. Okay, the blow up in Acacia was suboptimal but predictable. That's why I always tell you to do your homework before owning a stock. Much more mad money at, including my take on the big banks. With an ugly thesis building around the group, I'll tell you if the market's got it all wrong. Then beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I'm going to iron out the wrinkles with the CEO of Revance Therapeutics, Allergan. Take note. And all your calls rapid fire. Tonight's edition of the Lightning Round from Stick With Kramer. We're watching the birth of an idea here. I got to tell you something. It's an ugly one. The house of pain. The notion that there's very little loan growth in this country thanks to lower demand and the bank's unwillingness to lend. That's the downbeat consensus investors have cobbled together over the last few days after hearing from all the big banks, and no one's bothering to dispute it or even understand where the idea came from. That's why the bank stocks have stalled and are going lower. No one wants to pay up for them. It's kind of stunning. Wasn't the economy supposed to be doing great things thanks to those huge corporate tax cuts? Look, I get it. There are all sorts of loan variations that banks offer. Some of these businesses and consumer loan growth trends were terrific year over year, but sequentially compared to the previous quarter before the tax cuts kicked in, well, they were not so hot, at least versus the hopeful projections. When you look at the major banks, including the Hobble, Wells, Fargo, I see overall loan growth in the low single digits. Not bad. And when I look at the forecasts, again, I come up with low single digit growth, basically running in line with the GDP or a little ahead of it. But when you overlay what was supposed to happen with tax reform, you end up with an error that says something like, is that all there is? Business isn't picking up despite trillion bucks in tax cuts? And then you get the killer. No wonder the yield curve is flat. There's no real demand. 
It's not picking up, or the 10-year Treasury would be north of 3% by now. All of this, when the Fed is raising rates, look out, recession, here we come. My response, please, stop being so melodramatic. I can point to multiple uh, lending lines at these firms that suggest everything's pretty much alive and well. I see a situation where the banks are being disciplined in an environment where lending is more competitive than expected. Plus, and this is really a big plus, the banks are making so much money off of your deposits that they've been able to generate huge risk-free earnings. That, that's great. It makes the banks not just investable, pretty darn cheap down here, selling at roughly 12 times earnings. Are the banks being too timid? Are they more concerned about profiting from higher rates sans risk than making more money in a risky fashion? Yeah, sure. But that doesn't mean the American economy is weakening. Business is just too good on too many other lines. And there's so much money sloshing around deposit bases that the banks can simply afford to pick and choose who they want to lend to and still make fortunes. I'd say that's a pretty darn good situation for the banks. And it's not like the financials actually being responsible lenders is bad for America. I, I used to think that was good. Now, let's look at it another way. Let's, let's, let's trick it a little. Suppose the banks were lending in aggregate at a 4% or more, double our current GDP growth. You know what we'd be hearing? Well, the bears would be saying, ah, here it goes again. The banks are getting reckless. They're lending to everyone, and we're going to see a big jump in non-performing loans. So even though the earnings may look good, it's all going to come crashing down. Sell, 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 sell. sell, sell. There's just no pleasing some people. I think that in the end, the banks are indeed lending at the pace of GDP growth, and we haven't yet seen a big acceleration from the tax cuts because we aren't even in the bottom half of the first inning, people. The banks are open for business, and they're happy to rack up big profits without doing anything that's too risky. In other words, the banks are not sending a signal that the economy slowing or the tax cuts have failed to bring about growth or that we're headed into recession either. Not at all. Instead, I think they're saying things are good, not amazing, not overheated, but good and responsible. And the financials are the healthiest they've been in years. If that makes you want to bet against the U.S. economy, you might want to seek some professional help. They have money's back after the break. It is time! It's time for the night round! It's about first one ever seen. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skate! Dang! Time for the light round because we're going to start with Richard in Virginia. Richard! Hey, Jim. A great big booyah from Richmond, Virginia. I would, uh, I would like your professional opinion on Worthington Industries. Worthington uh, Industries is in the metals business. When we talk about metals on this show, we talk new car. That's what you want to buy. Let's go to uh, Luis in Louisiana. Luis. Booyah from New Orleans. Um, how are you doing today? I need to know what to do with my Qualcomm stock. Let me help, man. Qualcomm, I'm not there. I don't really like it right now. I need some of those things to be resolved. I need that NXPI deal to be resolved. Let's just say until that is, I am not a fan of Andrew in Texas. Andrew. Hey, Jimmy. Love the show. I got a big Texas. Booyah. That's a very emphatic Jimmy. one. I like that. I like those kind. What's going on? I've got a, a stock I need you to cut out of the herd for me. I know they just did an IPO. Dropbox. What are your thoughts? There are two IPOs, although one really doesn't count as an IPO. Spotify, which I really like, and Dropbox. And Drew Halston, you know where to go when you want to report. Are you going to come on our show when we're in California? Of course you are. Let's go to Bill in New York. Bill! Good evening, Jim. I appreciate your opinion on Myriad Genetics. Okay, this is really early. This company's been kicking around for a while. Uh, it's a, a you know it's an early stage company. It's 
Dead it sells only sells at twenty sells twenty five times earnings. Good spec charts bad. Let's go to Ben in Florida. Ben. Oh yeah, Jim. How about Skechers? SKX. You know, I think Skechers is doing well. I happen to pretend to like that Tony Romo ad. I'm not kidding. I think it's really good. Skechers is doing fine. I think that those the the boys who run that company have done a good job. They've weathered a lot. Andy in Indiana. Andy. Booyah, Professor Kramer. Whoa, I've got tenure. What's happening? Um, stock had a big move today. Can it keep it going? Kratos defense. Yeah, you know what? Now Kratos has been in a crossfire. There's longs and shorts. You know, we recommended it lower. It's a battleground stock. Shut, 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 I don't shut, want to be shut, in a shut, battleground. Shut, shut, shut. Let's go to Ronnie in New York. Ronnie. Hi. Booyah to you. Booyah, How Ronnie. I, I'm just... I have a question about the YY. I know we have a trading problem with them. So I'm just wondering if it's we a good time. We got a trading problem. You know what that means? That means... Sell, sell, sell. Let's go to Garrett in Florida. Garrett. Booyah. Hey, I uh, wanted to get your opinion on Enterprise Products, ticker EPD. And EPD whether or not it's is good. Now, remember, we had Mr. Mears on recently from MPP Magellan, which I... I'm, I'm sorry, MMP Magellan, which I did not do a good job on my Chapel Trust. Not at all. Jeez, that was a real bad call by me. But APD is in the same biz, and I think it's good, and I think you ought to hold on to it. That was a bad call by me. Hey, you got to own the bad ones and the good ones. That was a bad one. Let's go to Peter in Texas, please. Peter. Mr. Kramer. Take yeah. Booyah. Yeah. Booyah. Hey, uh, AWK, American Waterworks. What do you Always liked it. Good growth, uh, consistent company. Nothing matter with that. I'd say it's a buy. It's been a buy since we started the show. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. You can always judge a company by the quality of its enemies. Hey, that's a great piece of investment advice from Oscar Wilde. We own Allergan from my travel touch. You can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. And while Allergan struggled with a number of problems, there's one that I keep coming back to, potential competition from a little development stage biotech company called Revance. If Allergan's your rival, you're doing something right. Revance has been targeting Allergan's biggest franchise, Botox, working on their own injectable and topical therapies based on botulism. But don't freak out. That's what it's based on. The company's lead drug candidate is currently in phase three trials as an aesthetic treatment for frown lines. But it's also being studied for a kind of involuntary neck contractions and a type of heel pain. The great thing about Botox is that it has so many uses. It, it helps with pain and muscle spasms. also gives you smooth, wrinkle-free skin. Well, Revance is going after those markets, too. The advantage of their drug is that it's longer acting than Botox. You only need injections every six months rather than every three or four. And in addition to their proprietary formula, the company's also developing a generic by a similar version of Botox in partnership with Myelin. So far, the data has been pretty good, hence why the stocks rallied 75% last year. In the last few months, though, Advance has been trading sideways, consolidating its gains. I think this is one of those situations where there could be a lot more upside if this lead drug gets approved. So let's check in with Dan Brown. He's the co-founder, president, and CEO of Revance Therapeutics. Learn more about his company and where its prospects are going. Mr. Brown, welcome to Mad Money. Good day on the show, sir. Have a pleasure. Have a seat. Thank you very All much. All right, so, sir... Uh, Tell me about this uh, competitor, where you think where it is and how long before it comes in the market, you think? So uh, with RT002, we've reported on the phase three data. Right. We'll report the open label safety data the second half of this year, and we'll file the BLA. And, the BLA uh, English, come on. Man. Uh, the, the, the BLA is the biologic license application. Okay. 
and we'll have that approved in uh, early 2020. Okay, so um, Botox is one of the biggest selling drugs of all time. It's used for a lot of things, used for migraines. You heard some of those uses. Would yours be the same? So we have great respect for what Allergan has achieved, right. not only on the aesthetic, but on the therapeutic right. as well. So RT002, it, its mechanism for longer duration will apply in both. And you should expect us to sort of move in the therapeutic applications, much like we've done in facial aesthetics. Okay, so um, I need to know, when you compare your longer-acting uh, toxin to Botox, is it double the dose, as some critics say, so it may not be an apples-to-apples comparison? So w- we don't believe it's a double the dose. When, okay. you, when you look at the dosing, each unit of, of Botox is different from a, a unit of uh, Revance versus a unit of any other than commercially available toxins. So from, from our perspective, there's something unique about the, the toxin with the peptide that's giving these longer duration. Okay. Now, I was looking at this uh, piece of research that just came out by Barclays. It says mission impossible. If push comes to sub, we'd probably stop short of calling it mission impossible. This is the biosimilar that uh, you'll be developing with myelin. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's a you know, kind of aggressive claim. Isn't it? It's mission impossible. Are you doing well with it? So, look, I, I think we feel very good about what we've invested here on the, on the, on the neuromodulator technology. Okay. RT002 is distinctly different than a biosimilar. RT002 has the active pharmaceutical indents, botulinum toxin, okay. and it has the peptide. In the case of the biosimilar, this is a same base material but separate products. So we'll be filing for approval in, in 2020. Where we're at in the biosimilar is to be determined. We're going to meet with the agency. Mylan will meet with the agency later this year. But it will be a, it's a preclinical compound, so it's oh, well okay. down the road. All right, so let's, let's go back to the first one you mentioned. It, it just tell, how long typically would it be? I mean, would this be on the market in 2021 maybe? The the the, the, one, the biosimilar the, yeah, product? N- no, the other one. The oh no, one. I think I think on RT002 for frown lines, yeah. we're expecting that will be on the market in 2020. Really? So we'll that be quickly. we'll be we'll be filing with the FDA and Europe uh, shortly thereafter uh, next year. Um, and so you can use nine months to a year of, of review time at the regulatory agencies. All right. So Botox is a very expensive drug. Are, are you able to get a, a, as big a profit margin as Allergan? Can you come underneath them in price? So, look, this, is, this has been a passion for Revance for 15 years. We've invested all the way back to the same starting cell lines. Everything is made in the United States from starting uh, drug um, active pharmaceutical mm-hmm. index to finished drug product. So we think with scale, we'll have the same margins as the existing commercial le- uh, leader, a market leader in the Botox brand. And are you uh, a good enough balance sheet to be able to go through to 2020? Well, look, I don't think you're ever uh, as funded in biotech as, as much as, uh, as you want to be. But I think at this point, we're very well capitalized. We see a number of catalysts that as we go forward, depending on whether we partner, whether we don't partner, uh, that we'll be able to raise the capital we need to, to launch this product. So this would be, just let me be sure, uh, twice a year for people with frown lines, is what your goal is? Frown lines, we, the data supports that we've presented is six-month duration. This has been really from the, the best, most uh, largest volume users in North America, and that's what the data is looking at on a meeting basis, uh, six-month duration. That's and right. This is, a, this, is not, this is a cash purchase, right? When you buy both of this government doesn't cover for, at least when it comes to frown lines. That's right. No, it's, it, it's self-pay on the aesthetics. Well, all right, because I like that. I don't want to be beholden in this U.S. government anymore. Okay, that's Dan Brown, co-founder, president and CEO of Revance Therapy. This one's taken the world by storm. 2020, they're talking. Stick with Kramer. I'm 
Cayman Javers in West Palm Beach, Florida, where the President of the United States has been hosting the Japanese Prime Minister at Mar-a-Lago for a joint news conference this evening. It comes after a day in which the two leaders played a round of golf at Mar-a-Lago, the President's resort, and also held a working lunch with diplomats from both countries. At the news conference, the President expressed his warm regard for the Japanese leader, who is one of the leaders he spent the most time with, and also expressed an ambitious new goal for nuclear weapons. We will not repeat the mistakes of previous administrations. Our campaign of maximum pressure will continue until North Korea denuclearizes. We have great respect for many aspects of what they're doing, but we have to get it together. We have to end nuclear weapons, ideally in all parts of the world. This multi-day session between the two leaders at Mar-a-Lago has essentially been a planning operation for the joint summit between the President of the United States and the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. At the press conference, the President said that he hopes that the session will go well, and he wants to have a good result not just for North Korea, South Korea, and Japan, but also for the entire world. And now back to Jim Cramer for more Mad Money. Stunning news tonight after the bell. Jeff Bezos releases a letter where he reveals that they now have more than 100 million Amazon Prime members. 100 million. And this stock is soaring after the close, and I bet it's going to continue again tomorrow. You know what Amazon is? It's the A in Fang, and it's been one of my favorites for ages. Chapel Trust owns it, and yet I was still astounded when I saw this figure come out because they never talk about those numbers. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. Probably try to find it just for you right here on Man Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.